everybody. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeremy Kitchen. I'm the executive director at Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. Appreciate you joining us for another Twitter space or episode of the week ahead in the Texas legislature. We are, of course, joined by our fearless leader, Tim Harden, president and CEO of Texans for Fiscal Responsibility. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. And we are joined once again by special guest Vance again, PhD economist, president of Gin Economic Consulting. Good morning, Vance. Good morning. It's good to be with you. I appreciate y'all joining us this morning, gents. Obviously, we are in the final, I guess, two weeks of the 88th legislative session. Things are, of course, starting to wind down, but in other ways, winding up as they approach additional deadlines, if you will. And so I thought it was prudent this week, uh, considering I think today marks 14 days away from the end of the legislative session, to kind of talk about some of the things that caught a lot of, I guess, kind of eyeballs over the last few days. Um, we'll start specifically with the, uh, the school choice bill, right? The ESA bill, it passed the Senate, I guess, a month, a little over a month ago. That's SB Senate Bill 8 by State Senator Brandon Creighton. Um, of course, it passed the Senate. There were certainly a few provisions then, which I wouldn't necessarily say are concerning, but more make it to where it's not fully universal school choice. Um, it kind of languished and sat in the House for a few weeks. Uh, we saw um, at kind of late one night last week that there was a motion made to to have a, a hearing or kind of vote it, vote out this committee substitute that seemingly not a lot of people had seen, uh, which has kind of created some controversy, if you will. And then, of course, now there's a another committee substitute that started to raise eyebrows. It raised so many eyebrows, in fact, that it had the governor uh, come out and talk about or essentially say that he would he would veto uh, if this bill in its current form if it got to his desk and call special session. So I wanted to start there this morning. Uh, we'll start with you, Tim, just to kind of get your thoughts from our organization standpoint on school choice in general, and then we'll move on to, to Vance. Yeah, I think in, in general, we support the idea, right? We think that the free market best solves all problems. That includes education. Um, uh, I would argue that main reasons we have so many problems in education is because there's a monopoly government schools, right? And there's just not a whole for parents. And so we do support the idea of school choice. Uh, but of course, you know, our support of a particular bill is going to depend on the form it takes. And uh, in the latest version we saw from the House up just uh, what special needs kids, uh, and it's a very it's a very limited limited number of folks. And so, uh, from what we're seeing nationwide, where you're getting uh, either close to universal school choice or universal school choice, this is what uh, Abbott has been calling for for months, right? And so, it's very apparent they signaled this during the budget. Whenever the House voted on that amendment, going to spend any money on on you know vouchers or ESAs. And so we kind of knew the House was in opposition to this, you know, as far as the majority was concerned. Uh, but I will say, Sam, uh, I'm happy with Abbott that he called out and is being consistent with his messaging, right? He's been uh, going from uh, different schools to the fact that he wants school choice. And I think it's a really strong move that he says, hey, this bill is unacceptable. I will veto it. And I will call it special session until we get this. And so we got to give credit where credit is due. Um, uh, 
obviously this version is not going to be the one that passes and comes into law. And so uh, our organization will save our, uh, you know, our endorsement of a particular bill until we actually see it and can look at the intricacies. But in general, I think what, what we're looking for is something more akin to universal school choice. I'm, I'm personally very hesitant when we uh, in, include homeschool just because of the homeschooling environment, but nevertheless, you know, an ESA, um, should allow a parent to choose really any school they want. I mean, this is what the actual idea of school choice is. We just have to be careful because with government dollars come strings attached. And so that would be the only hesitation for our organization. We need to see uh, what, what those strings are. Uh, and if, you know, what we're being, um, we're being asked to support is legitimate school choice. Vance, you know, obviously you're someone who's worked on this issue for quite some time. I'm sure would love, just like anyone else, to kind of see it come to fruition. What are your thoughts on the ESA bill in its current form um, and then moving forward over the next two weeks? Yeah, Jeremy, uh, I thought y'all laid that out well. Um, and it's interesting to see the dynamics that are going on for school choice. It's great that we're having this discussion. <laughs> we haven't been able to have it for a while now. I guess it was 2017 was the last time we really had it in Texas. And that ended up failing. And, you know, what's interesting about 2017 is that bill was very similar to the one that the House just proposed. I mean, it was for special um, those kids with special needs. Um, it was very small and they couldn't get that one done. It passed out of the Senate and it failed in the House. So it's interesting <laughs> that they're proposing one that's very similar to that. Um, this one looks to be a cost of just reading through some stuff about, of about $200 million is what the, the committee substitute for SB3 that's passed or that's, that's in the House anyway. It has to go through committee. Um, but, but it looks like it only covers about 800,000 students. And if you look what was in SB3 that passed out of the Senate, Creighton's, you know, the Creighton's bill there, um, it would cover basically all public school students and any student that was in uh, a public school, government school, over the, for 90% of the previous year. Um, and then they added amendment on the floor by Creighton that would have allowed some um, private school students to use it as well. Um, and it also includes any kids that are going to pre-K or, or kindergarten, they would be included and get the ESA education savings account of about $8,000 is what, how much would be in this account for the parent to then be able to use for the different types of education services that they would like to use, for whether it be private school, you know, even a public school or tutoring, uh, extracurricular activities, you know, there's a lot of things that you could use it for, which is one of the, the innovations that's so great about an ESA compared to quote unquote a voucher, which you just take from one institution to another institution. And that's where this saying goes funds, you know, students, which the ESA does compared to funding system, which does through either taxpayer dollars or through a voucher system. And so there's some differences there. But I think the key part here is that what passed out of the Senate would cover about 5.5 million students. It would be the most expansive you know, school choice that we've seen in the nation as far as numbers go, um, whereas the one in the House is only 800,000. <laughs> so it's substantially smaller. Um, this is just not enough. And I'm glad to see that Governor Abbott came out and said, look, if this doesn't pass, I'm going to veto it. And he's willing to have special sessions in order to get this done. The last thing I would say here is that we've got to remain competitive. And, 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 you know, I'm a free market guy, so I believe in markets. I believe in competition. I think it's important for us as individuals and as our families. We, we see that all the time with sports and everything else. But something as important as education, 
we should have as much competition as possible because we know what the benefits are from competition. We have it with our clothes, with our electronics. Why would we not have it in something as so important as education for our kids and for the future of our, our state? Um, and when you look at the other states that have already passed you know, school choice and ESAs in particular, it's been universal or, or nearly universal, much more than what's being discussed so far in Texas from either the Senate or the House. Um, when you look at places like Arizona, West Virginia, Florida, Utah, you I mean there's there's um, six states total, I guess, that if Iowa is another one, um, Arkansas, right? So there's six states total, looks like seven soon with South Carolina. I mean, so we don't want to get left behind. <laughs> you remember the No Child Left Behind, which was a problem in itself because it was at the federal level? Well, this is going to start leaving me behind the state from not being as productive, not, not getting the education that we should need, and ultimately for parents not to be empowered and for teachers not to be, have negotiating power with our monopoly situation that we have of our current government school system in Texas. So I'm, I'm, you know, I think that there's some good signs here, but we need to keep pressing and make sure that we get something big because other states are doing it. We need to be doing it here in Texas as well. It's amusing to me, both looking at commentary from folks who do not reside in Texas, wondering, I guess, you know, kind of surprised uh, based on their perception of Texas, right, and the politics in Texas, surprised that it's so difficult here in the state to get a, let's say, a universal school choice or a school choice bill, right, that would be effectual. Um, why Why do you think that is, Tim? And we'll, we'll go to Vance afterwards. What What is standing in the way in Texas, and why, why are folks, uh, I guess, so confused from the outside, uh, given, you know, the difficulty here? Oh, that, that's an easy answer. It's because we're not as conservative as people think we are. And it comes down to our representatives. They're the ones who pass the legislation. And if you look at really any subject, any conservative subject, whether that's gun rights, whether that's, you know, all the all, all the social stuff going on with the gender, guess what? Texas first. We're always 15th, 20th. We're middle of the pack in basically every single conservative subject. And And why is that? Well, because we're not as our representatives are not as conservatives as they say they are. That that's ultimately what it comes down to. And so if, if there is this idea across the nation, you know, of this this stereotype about Texas being a con conservative state, but even when you look at like, you know, third party nonpartisan uh, rankings, Texas is consistently in the middle of the pack. We we are not this conservative bastion. Now, I I also think that we do a lot better than a lot of other states, so I don't want to just poo-poo on Texas, right? But I just I do want to smash that uh, that notion that that Texas is leading the nation, conservative uh, anything, right? In, in any subject, we're not. We're always the 14th or 15th to pass. We do not lead on these. Are we fairly conservative compared to other states? Yeah. Are we an economic powerhouse? Absolutely. But are we legitimate, conservative, fiscally responsible policy, I would say, especially after this session, this is one of the worst <laughs> legislative sessions I've ever seen when it comes to like growing government. Um, and so we have a long way to go. And ultimately, it's going to come down to our elected representatives and whether the people of Texas are happy with this status quo or we want to bring in more conservative representatives. And of course, that is a that is a question for campaign season, which we are not quite to yet. But that, that's my opinion on school choice. It's not any different than any other uh, subject. Uh, we just need more bold and brave conservative leaders in Texas. Before we move on to the next topic, Vance, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's this the saying, right? Uh, what is it? Um, 
no no cattle, right? What is it? No cattle. Um, more more cattle. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I blanked out there for a minute, man. Um, but but that's what we see a lot in Texas. There's a lot of this talk that's going on. But at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road to get action done, we don't see the action take place. And um, I'm hopeful, like, I mean, I agree with what um, Tim was saying there, is that we, we need more conservative leaders to step up, make their voice heard. It can't just be those of us from the outside. I mean, we also need the more conservative legislators that are in there now, you know, to talk and, and, and bring up key points um, publicly, you know, talk about these things, keep pushing. I mean, I know that there are trade-offs, right, of, of whenever you're on certain committees or whenever you have certain bills and everything else, but we, we need to hear from you. <laughs> you're, you're really representing those of us who are more fiscally conservative, you know, fiscal hawks, if you will, who really want to see competition in Texas be able to lead, lead the American dream, lead the Texan dream, if you will, um, across this great state, and, and unfortunately, we're not always seeing that, whether it be school choice, the budget, which is just the House and Senate both are just blowing through all the increases, whether you look at population plus inflation or you look at our free Texas, the frozen Texas budget, right? I mean, they're just blowing through those and then not providing as much in property tax relief. And, and so you get into all these other discussions that, you know, are important, but I think when you start focusing too much on the wokeness, we, we lose sight of the fiscal responsibility. We lose sight of the, the school choice and the things that I think we really should make sure that we're getting done. If we're going to get the woke stuff done, let's make sure to get this stuff done too because this also really, really matters for the future of our state and the future for families. Well, you brought up property tax. Let's pivot real quick. Obviously, that is something else that has kind of taken – different form in the last few days, really. Um, I will start with you again, Vance, but, you know, to kind of kind of line out what we're looking at, it, it appears as though, and I have not read through the full committee substitute in all fairness, but it appears as though there's kind of a fusion, if you will, between the House's approach and Senate approach here in the last two weeks of the legislative session. It's all kind of being plugged into Senate Bill 3 and Senate Joint Resolution 3 as far as appraisal caps and the homestead exemption go. Uh, do you mind kind of talking through that briefly, Vance? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I just I just remembered as I was talking earlier, I think I said SB3 uh, for school choice, but of course right. that, was SB8, that was SB8. SB8 was there. But this one, SB3, which is also on my mind a lot because I've been reading a lot about it, following a lot of the discussion that's going on out there in the public. Um, Brad Johnson over at the Texan News, he's been doing a good job of you know, publishing this stuff on their website on the latest version of um, the com committee substitute for SB3 um, over in, 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 you know, the, it, it's interesting, right? So you had this pass out of the Senate and where they had a package of three bills, SB3, which was the homestead exemption, raising it from 40,000 to 70,000. Um, it also increased it for those over 65 and disabled folks up to 100,000, okay? And then there was an SB4, which was their compression, um, it was a little bit in there, about half of what was in the, 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 the House's version. And then you had SB, uh, let's see, 5, which was a business personal property, um, private property, and, and making it a higher exemption on that. So that was their three-bill package compared to HB 2, which started out in the House, okay? And so now, you know, you've had those passed out of the Senate, and the, the House has taken this and said, okay, we're going to package this all together in one bill. We're going to come up with this committee substitute for, they're calling it just SB 3, but they put in their key thing that they like a lot, I guess, is this uh, appraisal cap of 5% for all real property, where currently today it's 10% on just homesteads. So this would include 
you know, uh, well, just any property that's out there for commercial, for individual. Um, so this would this would put that cap. And like we've talked about, that's not a good way to actually reduce property taxes. In fact, it won't reduce property taxes. It could slow the growth. But really what it does is if you limit the appraisal side of things, it just means that the tax rate's going to go up. So it disconnects those, which actually Patrick, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, made some good points about that recently. Um, and because they can still go up to the 2.5 or the 3.5 percent revenue amount, so it's not a, not a great way. But that's in the, new, the latest version. Um, and then they have put in the homestead exemption, which they talk so much bad about <laughs> out of Patrick and the Senate that they put in a homestead exemption and they increased it even more. They made it go from 40,000 up to 100,000. For um, for those with the homestead, whereas the Senate had up to seventy thousand, and then they for disabled and those sixty five and older, they raised it to one hundred ten thousand. So they're like, hey, we see what you are doing in the Senate, but we're going to go up even further. <laughs> um, and then the last thing they did is they still have in their compression, which was an HB two of fifteen cents, um, which was about twelve billion dollars. And, and I know that we've talked about that. That's that's really the gold standard. The compression just means that you're reducing revenues. To, to get down by that many cents. So you're actually reducing property taxes. Um, and so look, out of that bill, those three steps, the appraisal cap, the homestead exemption, and the compression, the compression is the best way to go. Homestead would be second, and then appraisal cap being third. Because uh, the homestead, at least you get some relief temporarily until values just go up above that pretty quickly. Um, and what's interesting here, though, Jeremy, is when I'm adding up the numbers, right, so $12 billion for that 15-cent compression, appraisal, that's really nothing, okay? You're not getting any money to have to pay, you know, taxpayer relief there. And then the homestead, raising it as much as they are, which is um, twice as much as what the Senate did on for, for real, you know, for homesteaders. Um, and that, the, the, the Senate's version was $3.4 billion. So let's say you double that now. That's $6.8 or nearly $7 billion. You're looking at close to $20 billion now. If all of that passed in the bill, I want to see the fiscal note. I want to see what's actually in there, you know, at the end of the day. But if I'm just doing some round numbers, they're getting much closer to the real record property tax relief of $20 billion when you inflate it, when you, when you inflate it um, over time, index, index it for inflation back to 08, 09 when they had 14.2. So look, at the end of the day, right, we always want to see the numbers. <laughs> show, me, show me the money, show me the data. Um, but we're, we're getting closer to that. Let's see what happens at the end of the day. I would love for them to put it all to a compression, which if they did that with this amount, would be about a 25 cent compression instead of 15 cent. But, but let's try to find out exactly what's going on. I know it took a little bit longer there, but I really wanted to summarize like really where we're at right now. Tim, what are your thoughts here? You know, we got two weeks left, and I think initially we've spoken several times before, both on this this uh, Twitter space and our, our weekly podcast, Taxpayer Talks, where it looks more and more like taxpayers weren't going to get much tangible relief at all. This potentially changes that depending on whether or not it's considered back in the center or not. What are your thoughts? Well, well first off, I want to say that, you know, I think this is a direct reaction uh, from the legislature to pressure from uh, grassroots Texans, taxpayers, and organizations who are demanding <clears throat> that they come through uh, on their promises of a historical property tax relief cut, right? Which we've said pretty much all fiscal organizations said this is $20 billion adjusted for inflation. So it's a good sign that we're moving closer and closer to that number. Yet again, I, I would like to see a fiscal note as well. Um, now, you know, let me let me take uh, my happy hat off, right, and, and talk about what actually happens between the House and the Senate uh, typically every time, right? And which what I think we're seeing is 
you know, the back and forth between Phelan and Patrick on the different packages, this is a way, and the house often does this, which is they just try and put egg on on Dan Patrick's face, right? Uh, this is actually why we got constitutional carry passed a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, Dan Patrick wasn't really that secretive, you know, behind closed doors, and he was not supportive of constitutional carry. And so the House passed it over and kind of threw the hot potato over there. I'm like, hey, go, buddy. You know, we got that over to you early. And guess what? Through grassroots pressure and phone calls, it actually got passed, right? And so I think what we're seeing here is we had Dan Patrick come out uh, early in the session and say, hey, my, my goal is to raise the homestead exemption to $100,000. And as a matter of fact, you know, when I was testifying in the Senate, I recommend it's like, hey, Dan Patrick said he wanted to go to $100,000. Why don't we go to $100,000 and why wait, right? And so I think we're seeing, one, the House take their provision, which is the appraisal cap, and stick it in that bill, right, to kind of say, here you go, Dan Patrick. They're going to basically force him to strip that out in conference committee, right? And then we have them raising it to what Dan Patrick said he was going to want to raise it to uh, eventually. So the House is posturing uh, to make themselves the more conservative or the better, uh, you know, their substitute be the better plan, which, hey, that benefits us as taxpayers. And so, you know, in this in this scenario, uh, the bill has gotten exponentially better. It just has. Right. And so I don't I don't think uh, we should stop there. I think taxpayers should always demand more. As a matter of fact, I would go, you know, as far as we possibly could, which is, you know, that surplus, that thirty three billion dollars that we still have about half of right sitting uh, sitting in the ether out there. We want all of our money back, all of it. They promised it. That's our money. The government is not for profit. That surplus is surplus tax dollars that they took from taxpayers that is just sitting there. And so we want a refund. And so the best case scenario would be they give every single cent of that back to us in property tax compression. Um, now, I don't know if we're going to get there, but I think, you know, we we don't lead with compromise. Right. And so we we need to demand as much of that money back as we possibly can get. And so uh, at bare minimum, this is a good sign that the House is is listening to the screams from all of the taxpayers that if nothing gets done, if we don't have some sort of major property tax relief, they're going to have problems. Not only are they going to likely have to come back for a special on this one, they're going to have problems in campaign season because it's not a very big secret. Any fiscal organization is calling out how much our budget has grown, how much corporate welfare has passed, the billions and billions of dollars we're spending on things like music subsidies. And if they don't deliver major property tax relief, they're going to have problems. So I think this is just a signal that, yes, you're going to have the House and Senate back and forth. Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with that. But ultimately, if they're you know having a competition on who can provide the most property tax relief, well, we're the winners. And so uh, I think we just continue to applaud that. And when they do great things and they improve things, we say, hey, we appreciate that. Hey, let's see if we can grab more. You go ahead, Vance. You had something else? Yeah, Jeremy, just real quick. Um, I totally agree with what Tim was saying there. And, you know, one of the things I know I talked about the competition on the school choice side, but there's also competition <laughs> when you talk about taxes. Um, I just released a piece in the center square talking about Alex's recent report, American Legislative Exchange Council, and they look at economic performance over the last decade, and they look at the economic outlook ranking. And economic performance, um, we were number two over the last decade uh, compared to Florida. Imagine that. Florida was number one. Um, and this is looking at GDP growth and, and um, employment growth and migration flows. And, and but then if you look at the economic outlook, like where they see things going, I mean, I think we were like bottom 10, like, well, not bottom 10, but latter part of the one to 10. I think we were number seven or number eight. So we were not number one. 
And, and a lot of that has to do with these other states are, are starting to be more competitive. We, we've sat back on our laurels a little bit and thinking, oh, man, we're just Texas. We're going to keep getting more people to come here. Businesses are going to move here. And, and they have been. But, I, but there are more ways to do that, and I think that is through property tax relief, not through, quote-unquote, economic development or economic incentives with HB5, right, the big new Chapter 313 they're trying to give for school districts to, you know, bring, bring businesses here at the expense of taxpayers, but actually lowering taxes for everyone. And if we do that, fortunately, we don't have an income tax, so other states are flattening their income taxes or even trying to get rid of their income taxes. Um, which there are nine states that don't have an income tax. Fourteen of them now have an, a flat income tax. That's 23. I mean, we're talking about half the states now are getting closer to being more competitive with us. And if we don't spend wisely, which we're currently not doing in this budget, and we don't provide more in tax relief, we, we will fall behind. And, and, and if you add in the, um, the school choice falling behind, I mean, this is going to be detrimental from an economic sense, from a societal sense. And, and, and just from family sense, that's the most important institution that I really think we're going to have some problems moving forward if, we don't, if they don't get this done. Well, you mentioned it. This is the last thing, the last topic I wanted to bring up today, just as an update to folks, is House Bill 5, right? There's, there's been a lot of corporate welfare, especially passed out of the House this legislative session. But uh, the biggest, right, uh, one that you alluded to is the revival of the Chapter 313 tax abatement program that you can't call the Chapter 313, uh, if you will. I wanted to give folks an update. Obviously, that passed out of the House, I think, uh, not last week, but the end of the week before that. Um, it has been referred as of the 9th of May uh, to the Senate Business and Commerce Committee. I wanted to highlight for folks, it's interesting that it got sent to that committee considering last legislative session, the, the out of the two bills uh, that were considered in the House to, re, uh, to renew the Chapter 313 tax abatement program, the one that did pass the House, the two-year extension that later failed, was referred to the Senate Natural Resources and Economic Development Committee. And so this uh, House Bill 5, this session being referred to a different committee, um, I thought was interesting. We, of course, do not know. We can speculate, right? But we don't know its prospects in the Senate other than I think we we probably all would generally agree, and you all tell me uh, that it, it does have a possibility to get through the Senate considering that allegedly, right, green subsidies um, are, are taken out of it. Let's start with you, Tim. What are your, your thoughts here as we, we wrap up not only this uh, Twitter space, but the last two weeks of the legislative session? Yeah, I think it has a, a very, very real possibility. And I think if, if I had to place a wager that it's it's probably going to get across the finish line, right? Just, just you know, looking at what's happening, uh, it, it's pretty apparent that, you know, the legislature as a whole is not necessarily opposed to subsidies. As a matter of fact, the Senate has passed subsidies just with different, you know, they're passing subsidies in kind of the oil realm. And our organization opposes subsidies uh, 100%. Uh, no matter where it's going from, because it is a disruption of the free market. When the government picks winners and losers, taxpayers lose, ultimately. And uh, they're taking our money and they're giving it to multinational billion-dollar corporations, right, that have uh, basically come out in many studies and said, we don't even care if we get this money, right? And so it's, it's a waste of money. The best economic incentive we can give anyone is low taxes. As a matter of fact, hey, if we eliminated property taxes, could you imagine the incentive that people would have to come to Texas? No income tax, no property tax. And yes, we do have enough money. We do, don't have a revenue problem. We have a spending 
problem. And so, you know, we saw Governor Patrick, I think he was tweeting about uh, sports betting, right? Say, hey, we need, we need to, this is a red state. We got to govern like, you know, the GOP, right? And I think it was uh, Connie Burden, they, they called him out and he's like, she's like, yeah, let's kill 313s, right? Like, this is nonsense. This is opposed in the GOP platform. It's opposed in the Democrat platform. And I think most folks who kind of have their ear to the ground understand that I think what Dan Patrick and the Senate is trying to do is they're they're trying to horse trade with the House, right? Which is, hey, if you if you pass these certain things for us, we will make sure that HB5 gets across the finish line, which of course uh, is going to be horrible uh, for us as taxpayers. And and you know when you give this kind of power to school districts, right, in an already corrupt educational government school environment, it's just it's not a good thing, uh, no matter which way you slice it. And so my hope is, you know, I, d I don't want to be a, a Debbie Downer and I, I, nothing is for sure. Uh, but I think, you know, with two weeks left to go, I think we have to continue to openly oppose this. I think we need people like Connie, people like all of these economic organizations that know that this is a distortion of the free market. And we need to, to make sure that taxpayers are having their voices heard, calling and letting the Senate know, hey, we don't want this. It died last go around for a reason because Texas doesn't want this. The majority party doesn't want this. And so the best case scenario would be for it to die. But I don't think I don't think we can just relax and say, hey, you know, the Senate, the Senate's more conservative. They're going to take care of it. I, I wouldn't go that far. I think there's a real, real good chance that this is going to pass. And so we need to oppose this all the way up until signing day. Final thoughts on this, Vance? Yeah, just just real quick is um, recently on my Lefty Old Prosper show, it's a podcast, you find it on all the major platforms, but I had James Homan, who is the, um, he's one of the senior researchers at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy up in Michigan, and he's done a lot of work on economic development, and we had a pretty lengthy conversation about what exactly does this mean, and it, is it necessary, and um, his research, as Tim mentioned before, it shows that no, it's not, that those businesses are going to end up moving there anyway. Right, like the wind um, businesses before, whenever this chapter 313, they were going to do it, go to West Texas where the wind is at. <laughs> uh, but then, then they get a sweetheart deal in addition to that. Um, but that goes with a lot of other types of programs or, or businesses and these projects that were handed out. And, and it does come on the back of taxpayers. You'll hear these discussions about how it benefits taxpayers and everything else. But look, that discount, whether it's 50%, even more sometimes, of how much the property tax is going to be. There are still benefits being received from the local area, right, that we are then paying for in the process because that that entity isn't going to pay those property taxes. I think Tim hit on it nicely, though. Of course, we want to eliminate property taxes. Like we agree, legislature, that property taxes are too burdensome, which is why we should be finding paths to, to eliminate them, not by providing sweetheart deals. And, and the last thing I'll say here is that anytime you are – exempting things like the homestead exemption that you're putting in um, these chapter 313 these quote-unquote economic incentive deals what you're doing is is you are narrowing the tax base meaning you're putting fewer people that are paying in to those taxes which is going to take it longer to get to elimination you're making the problem worse not better and so we should be focusing in on limiting spending cutting property taxes until we get to elimination as fast as possible. And then again, that's the best economic incentive we could ever have. We would be an economic juggernaut in the great state of Texas. Well, uh, we two weeks left in the 88th legislative session. I mean, who knows 
what can happen. I think obviously we are seeing some of the narratives be fused together, combined, horse trading, as we talked about earlier. It'll be interesting. Wanted to remind folks that if all of that, all of what we talked about today, you know, all of these issues, if they interest you, we, of course, opine on those frequently. We are keeping track on what's happening for the remainder of the legislative session. You can find all of that at texastaxpayers.com. Obviously, make sure to stay tuned not only for this. We've got two episodes left of this uh, of the, the week ahead as the legislature comes to a close. But we also do our weekly podcast on Thursdays. You can find that Taxpayer Talks Thursdays. Find that at our website as well. I appreciate everyone joining us today. We will see you next week on Monday as we continue to track the 88th legislative session. Thanks so much.